Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello, and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, to all of you who have been listening to this podcast, for the over the last six years. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for those of you who have left me a review on iTunes and have pre-purchased the book. Your support means everything to me. Keep your ears and eyes open because I'm going to be doing some great stuff. For people who have pre-purchased the book, including a back-to-school virtual event, you can just go to backtoschool.howtotalktokids.com for details. Know that it comes out for good 10-10, October 10th, and I am so excited. Now, we're probably all in the same boat where I say we've felt this before, this ever more competitive race for today's students that they run each day towards their best possible future, feeling the crushing pressure to do more, 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 jamming their schedules full of resume padding activities, AP classes, tutoring, and whatever else can give them that extra edge over the rest so that they can get into the right colleges that gets them on the right path towards the right future. At the same time, we have skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, and more. Is it possible to help kids strive towards excellence without having the process crush them while on their way? For this, we are speaking with Jennifer Wallace. Jennifer Wallace is an award-winning journalist and contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. She lives in New York with her husband and their teenagers. And she has a new book out August 22nd. It's called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Welcome, Jennifer Wallace, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Before we leap in, can you tell us what lights you up and energizes you? Just generally or about parenting specifically? You can tell me anything people have told me as benign things as coffee and as specific things as exactly what they wrote the book about. So what lights you up and what energizes you? What lights me up is watching people connect deeply. And so whether it's my kids playing together or helping each other or being at an airport and watching people greet each other and, and say their hellos, I get lit up when I see people connecting deeply. Mm. It's probably an evolutionary impulse. <laughs> yes. I really feel like connection is so important. And it's one of the reasons why I love my neighborhood now. The feeling of connection is so important. And I do find it really gratifying and energizing too. Um, in fact, I feel like when I don't have that, 
I, I really feel like it's missing. So I appreciate what you're saying. I think we all we all need a little more connection in our lives, which brings me to your book because I feel like that is a, a really important segue. Towards the beginning of the book, you write over the past 30 years, as the world has grown more competitive and more uncertain, parents have bet big on the belief that childhood success, the grades, the trophies, the resumes is the surest, safest pathway to secure happy adult life. The bar for excellence, I think, always seems to be moving. And you write that in your book. And we find that kids have to take on a persona that isn't authentic and leads them to this disconnection so that they become something that they actually don't necessarily even want to be. I have two young teenagers as well. So I've just started to get a glimpse into this achievement culture more and more on a personal level, and it can be really intense. So what did you personally notice that brought you to write this book over the last four years? Yeah. So a lot of things were bubbling up at once. Um, so I, I remember the varsity blues scandal. Do you remember that in 20? Yes, very well. Yes. Where the parents on, um, both coasts, West coast, East coast, um, they committed fraud. Um, you know, uh, uh, they, 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 uh, broke a lot of federal laws trying to secure their kids in a, you know, highly selective college. And I was wondering how did we get to the point where parents were willing to go to jail mm. to get that brand name college. And I wasn't buying the popular narrative that they just wanted the bumper sticker. They just wanted the brand name. I thought there was something, my instinct was that there was something deeper going on here. I was also wondering at the same time, my son was in eighth grade, my oldest, I have three teenagers, but my oldest at the time was in eighth grade. And I kept thinking, why is his childhood so different from my own? You know, I have the same values and, and morals and outlook as my parents, but yet his life and my children's lives were so much busier and so much more mm -hmm. frenetic and so much more stressful. Um, and then in 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post where uh, I was reporting on two national policy reports, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the National Academies of Sciences. These are two really credible uh, sources. And both of them had named students who attend what researchers call high achieving schools an at-risk group. Mm. And researchers define high achieving schools as competitive public and private schools around the country where most of the students go on to four-year colleges, where they have you know, rich extracurricular offerings and advanced placement classes and pretty high standardized test scores. Those students attending those schools were now officially two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse disorder compared to the average American teen. And my three kids go to these high achieving schools. And so I wanted to know first, how did we get here? Why are these kids who seemingly have it all? Why are they now an at-risk group after kids living in poverty, children with incarcerated parents, recent immigrants, and children living in foster care? Why are these children an at-risk group? Um, and I wanted to know, importantly, what I could do in my own home to buffer against that excessive pressure to achieve. Mm. 
Because we're talking about achievement culture and it is back to school time, let me just take a moment to say I am inviting all of you, all of you, to my back to school virtual event, which is happening on September 7th at 8 p.m. We are going to be talking about back to school fears and feelings around school. We're talking about homework and responsibilities, friendship matters, bullying. I've got some amazing guests, Phyllis Fagel, Janine Halloran, and Dr. Michelle Borba. All of you remember all of them from our podcast. And we are going to be getting into the thick of it. Just grab your ticket to the live event by going to backtoschool.howtotalktokids.com. No www, just backtoschool.howtotalktokids.com. Grab your ticket. It will give you all the details on how to do so. And I hope to see you there. All right. So in your book, you talk a lot about this idea of mattering as part of this major solution, moving towards uh, helping these kids see that they matter beyond their grades and what they do, um, that, that they can then embrace mattering independent of what they do for who they are, for why they are important just because. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this concept of mattering and why and how it can be an important solution to this hyperachievement problem. Right. So I, I traveled the country for three and a half years looking for who were the kids, who were the students who were thriving despite the pressure, the excessive pressure in their environment. I wanted to know what, if anything, they had in common. What was home life like? What did their parents focus on? What were the relationships like with their peers, with their teachers at school in the larger community? And I found about 14 or 15 common threads. And as I was looking for a framework to present my findings to parents, I came across the psychological construct called mattering. Mattering was first conceptualized in the 1980s by Morris Rosenberg, who brought us self-esteem. He, um, at the time in the 80s, he found that students' children who enjoyed a, a high level of a healthy level of self-esteem also felt like they mattered to their parents, that they were important and significant. And researchers have been studying it since the eighties. Um, and the, the definition of mattering that resonates most with me and what I saw acted as a kind of buffer against the pressure was this idea of feeling valued for who you are at your core by your family, by your friends, by your community, and then being depended on to add meaningful value back to your family, to your friends, to your communities. The kids who were thriving had this high level of mattering. It acted like a protective shield. They still were you know, anxious. They had setbacks. They would be down but mattering acted like a buoy and lifted mm. them up. They were able to bounce back faster. The kids who seemed to be struggling the most, I found, were kids who felt like their mattering was contingent on their performance, meaning I only matter when. The other group of kids who, were all, who also seemed to be suffering were kids who, who absorbed those messages from their parents that they mattered 
but they were never depended on or relied on to add value back to anyone other than themselves. So what I found was these kids lacked social proof that they mattered. They got the words, but they didn't see an impact of how their life impacts others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it set them up to be so self-focused that all of their self-esteem and self-worth sort of rode on their ups and downs of their lives. And that was a very bumpy life for them. So you know, it's interesting because I, I feel like parents these days have said, just like what you're, what you're saying right now, just brought this into my head that when, oh, my child is so busy, they have this exam, they have these sports, they, you know, come home and after sports practice at school, and then they've got to do this, this homework. And then, so I'm just going to take chores off the table and not have them do anything that can distract them from the things that they have to do. But based on what you're saying, it seems that having that contribution in their family and feeling connected in a way that makes them see I matter here, I make a difference here is actually very important. And by taking it off the table, you're actually feeding into the problem. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, It's not just having chores such as picking up your clothes or, you know, self-care items, you know, brushing your teeth, teeth or making your bed. Those are not the kind of chores that I think make an impact on a child's mental health. It's Mm -hmm. the, it's, it's having, it's being needed by your family. That is a basic human need that we are needed. We are relied on. We are important enough that we make a difference in our environment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have three teenagers. I have done chores uh, not so well in the early days of parenting. I really, you know, chores became a real chore for me. Um, but since researching this book, I've, it's become very clear to me that my children need to know that, that they're needed and that they make an impact on the family well-being. Mm -hmm. And so what we've started to do since researching this book, I met a mother in Maine who, uh, every week did something she called the family meeting. And when I first heard that word, my eyes glazed over a little bit, to be honest, I was like, Oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want to be doing family meetings, corporate stuff in my house. But (laughs) so I, I sat on, I sat in and I listened to it and it was just 10 minutes. And every, every weekend she would meet with her kids. She was a single mom. And she would say, here's what we're, here's what's needed in the family. So, you know, one of the things that she had, which is also an issue in my house is She'd get home from work every day and trip over all the shoes at the front door. And so like, that was one of the family matters. Could you guys, so she would say to her kids, can you guys help me solve this? Like, what is it that we need? Why are the shoes not going in the closet? How can we, um, I did this in my own house and my kids, uh, brainstormed and came up with the idea that, you know, the way I have our front hall closet set up is not conducive to finding shoes when you're rushing. And so Mm -hmm. they said they went on Amazon and they found this like cheap, um, two tier shoe rack. Mm -hmm. If you put this in, we'll be able to find our shoes and we'll put our shoes in the closet. So they came up with a solution. You know, it was a simple little thing, but it Mm -hmm. had an impact. And when I was writing this book, my now 17 year old, he was, uh, 13, I guess when I first started this, wow, that's crazy. Um, he became my tech expert, um, 
And he knew that he was really needed because at one point, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I thought I lost an entire chapter and I texted him at school and he pretended to go to the bathroom and actually talked me through recovering one of my chapters. Oh my God. So he's he's been my tech expert ever since. That's a very dubious honor that he has, but he's, he wears it. Um, you know, another like task in the family was we, we, I have three teenagers and my younger son and my older son go to the same school, but they go to different versions. My young, younger son was in elementary. My older son was in middle. And so I said to my son, I really need your help bringing the younger one to school every day. So that was sort of his family, his way of participating for the family. And even if he was off from school, even if he had a class so that he could go an hour late to school, you know, he was missing, he would still go and bring his brother to school. So that was just something that had to be done. So Mm. I think often we, as parents, you know, if I could just emphasize that I screwed up so much in the beginning, talking about chores and chore charts and making this like a, a, almost a power struggle. I didn't mean it to Mm -hmm. be, but it almost became that. And when we can go side by side with our kids and have these, you know, shoulder to shoulder, here are the problems. How can we solve them? They, they, they bought into it. Mm. They feel included Um, in the, into the conversation Mm -hmm. and important and significant. And so they feel like they matter. Then they get the proof that they matter, which then feeds their mattering. So Mm. it's upwards. It's this upward spiral. I love that. So if it turns out that we, we have what you just discussed is this kind of like other way of showing that we matter. How about applying this practice to the elephant in the room, which is, you know, that the grades and all the stuff that is in their schedule. So let's say, you know, your child gets a bad grade on the test or they've, they're seeming like they're really overwhelmed beyond belief. And you know, that the best thing is for them to not be doing something, or they even say, I want to quit soccer. And they've been doing soccer for 10 years. And you're like, uh, because I know that that's sometimes the reaction you can't quit now kind of thing. So how about we apply this idea of mattering to that and tell us what might that sound like, uh, or, or look like in practice? Yeah. So I, I interviewed so many amazing families and psychologists for this book. Um, and researchers and sociologists and historians and anthropologists. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and one of the one of one mom that I interviewed was very wise. And she said when her kids come home from school, if they bombed a test, if they got cut from the A team, if their friends were sort of icing them out and they their self-worth was really feeling like it was crumbling, she would do this, what she called the $20 experiment. She'd go into her wallet and she would take out a $20 bill. And she would say to her kids, do you want this? And they would say, yes. And then she would say, okay, hang on. And she'd crumple up the $20 bill, put it on the floor, stomp it theatrically with her dirty shoe, and then dunk it in a glass of water. Then she'd pick up the $20 bill, wrinkled, dirty, soggy, wet. And she would say, do you still want this? And the child would say, yes. And she said, like this $20 bill, your worth doesn't change whether you are down on the ground, get cut from a team or soggy and wet going through life. Your value is your value. It does not change. Um, and mm-hmm. so I have taken that to heart. And, and Sonia Luthar, who is a, um, 
she passed away recently, but she was the leading researcher on childhood resilience. Um, and what she made a point to me when I, when I said to her, well, you know, isn't it a parent's job to, uh, to help our kids reach their fruition, to, to help them achieve all that they're meant to be. And she said, our kids today are so bombarded with messages of achievement on social media, in the classroom, they read it on the news, the emphasis of getting into certain colleges. There is such an emphasis day in and day out on achievement that home needs to be a place to recover. Mm -hmm. Home can't be another place where kids are feeling like they're being dragged to excellence. And so I said to her, okay, if I'm going to, so the first day I met with her, I said, okay, what should I do tonight in my house? Like, how can I start implementing this idea? And she gave me a phrase, which has stuck with me, which is minimize criticism, prioritize affection. And so she made it, her research found it very clear that what caused mental health struggles among these youth were perceived criticism from parents. So it might not even be that we think we're being outwardly scolding and criticizing, but even subtle things are taken as criticism. Our, our teenagers are wired as we all are with a negativity bias. So we pick up and, and those negative statements or eye rolls, or, um, they stick with us more than positive things do. So, you know, as a parent, I have really taken to prioritizing affection and, and seeing them for who they are and emphasizing who they are at their core as much as I possibly can. And, you know, some of the ways I do this is, um, in the book, I call it getting a PhD in them. So what I do is I notice my kids. I had a hard time really figuring out what exactly were their natural strengths. And so I came across something called the VIA survey, which is a free 10 minute survey that was developed by two of the leading researchers of positive psychology. They're sort of the grandfathers of positive psychology, Marty Seligman mm -hmm. and Christopher Peterson. And it's a free 10 minute test. They have a version for adults and a version for kids. And they ask you these questions and they get to your core character strengths. And so we did this as a family and we printed out my kids' character strengths and my own. And we notice them now about each other. I mean, my daughter has this great sense of humor. Um, and so when she's having a struggle at school, we, we look at her strengths and we say, what can you do? How can you help yourself? What, can, what strength can you lean on? Um, another thing we do to sort of focus on the core of our children as, you know, as opposed to their achievements is, um, well, I got this idea from Rick Wiseboard, who's at Making mm -hmm. Care in Common. And he said to me, the self becomes stronger, less by being praised than by being known. Mm -hmm. And that gave me direction of where to put my parental energy, which is getting to know my kids. Um, and so, you know, doing the VIA survey or reading the report cards that come home, and I've now taken to annotating them. So we get like four or five sentences from the teachers and I highlight them and I say, oh my gosh, I see this too. Like for my, my son, they said, you're always the first one to jump up to help somebody with a math who's having a trouble in math. And I said, I see this about you too. 
Um, we also make rituals around noticing, really letting our kids feel seen for who they are. So for birthdays in our house, we go around the table and we say one thing we love about the birthday person. And it's always something inherent to who they are, that they're kind. My daughter might say to my son, you are so kind, even to strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's noticing and celebrating and recognizing what really matters about that child. Mm-hmm. And it is their core character strengths. It is not the, uh, the grades on the report cards. It's so beautifully said. And I think that's just so important that we notice our kids and see their strengths. I would say it's especially important for those kids who typically get negative feedback, uh, thinking of neurodiverse kids, kids who have different types of special needs for sure. And it's they spend so much time in school getting negative feedback for not fitting the mold. Uh, that it's it's very important to, I'm not just saying being a buffer, but actually being a true mirror to that child and being able to say, you know, my son is somebody who notices everything. It's, it's such a gift um, of his ADHD. Uh, it, yes, it's, it's how I explained it to him that, you know, how you notice everything, the clock ticking and the, you can spot the deer out in the, in the woods camouflage. Nobody else can see it. You're the one who tells me, look up, mom, look at that beautiful sunset. And I said, you know how you, you notice everything. Well, that's a real gift. And in school, sometimes you notice everything. He's like, oh, right. I notice everything. And then that can be distracting. That's ADHD for you. So he, but he has gotten so much negative feedback in his life from school um, that he needed places where he can really use his gifts. So I'll tell you that he's at a camp this summer. The very first thing the camp director said to us when we got here, got there, because they asked us for like, I mean, a long comprehensive thing about our child was, Hey, you're Noah. I hear you can spot anything before anybody else. You notice things that other people don't like the deer across the woods and and camouflage. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this guy knows exactly who my child is. And Noah's like, yeah, that is me. And so the more that we can help kids develop what I call their I am statement, and I talk about this in my, in my book on in, in the chapter on self-esteem, that they can own those incredible strengths and change the dialogue in their head from I am ugly, lazy, not good enough, never enough, as you say in your book the more they can change it to something positive and see their strengths, how much they can go into the world and see where they can contribute and where they matter. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think you said that so beautifully. Hmm. So how might we be able to help our children gauge when things get to be too much for them, when they are pushed to the edge and they need to let go of something. And maybe when they need to push a little harder, even though maybe they're nervous, because I can imagine people are listening in on this and thinking, okay, I I get that when it's too much, but what about my child? If I feel like they're almost there, 
and maybe they're just nervous about pushing through? How, how can you see when it's unhealthy and when it's just like, I, I need a little extra encouragement to push forward? Yeah. I think when you get a PhD in your kid, you, you, you get to see, you get to know them intimately. Mm. You get to see when the stressors are overpowering them, when they're not sleeping. Mm. Um, but you know, I asked this question, um, about sort of how, how to, how to use a kind of healthy fuel to motivate kids, right. As, as you were saying, like to, without pushing them too hard. And so, um, I spoke with Lisa Demore about this and, uh, who's a psychologist and she was talking about how not focusing on shiny outcomes, but instead on how the work gets done. So, you know, as parents, we can set perimeters and it's really our job to help with the scaffolding. And we could talk about how work gets done, it gets done, you know, after school, after a short break before you're too tired, that's when we get our work done. We sit at a desk, we have a good, we have good light. If we have a phone, it's in a different room. So we're not distracted by it. You know, we work maybe in 20 minute blocks and then we get up and we check the phone. Um, we can also talk about the parameters of sleep. We, you know, sleep is a major issue. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a, in the students that I spoke with, they would talk about, and I write about this in the book, they would talk about either going to sleep or waking up at 3 a.m. to do their work. And that's because they were in travel soccer. They were volunteering. They were in a million clubs. They were taking an excessive amount of AP and honors courses. And the wise parents that I met actually thought what they did was they were deliberate about setting boundaries. One of the mothers called it, and I titled my chapter this, taking the kettle off the heat that instead of helping push her kid to excellence, it, instead of, you know, just saying, this is my kid, this is what she wants to do. And you no, know, she saw it as she was her child's prefrontal cortex. And she was going to tell him, this is an, an, a healthy amount to take. Because what I have found in the research, a lot of these kids disproportionately become and turn to alcohol and drug use, mm -hmm. not for peer pressure, but to you know, to stop the, the work hard mindset, you know, they mm -hmm. play hard the coping. To, mm -hmm. to coping, to shut mm -hmm. it down. And so the job of a parent and the job of these parents that I met was to help their children create a life that they wouldn't have to escape from with drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is we, you know, you can sit, depending on the, the age of your child, you could sit and look at a 24 hour day and you could just knock out the things that have to be done, school and sleep. And then as uh, Challenge Success, actually, which is a nonprofit affiliated with Stanford, talks about something called the PDF, giving children enough playtime, downtime, and family time every day. And so you can help your child sort of, you know, zoom out, look at their day and say, this is what a normal amount of work is. We also have to look at our own modeling. Are we taking time to play? Are we taking downtime? Are we sleeping? Um, it's, you know, it requires modeling and then it requires the guardrails. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you, you're reminding me of something because I remember when you were talking about those shiny outcomes and 
that was also at a time when you're talking about authentic pride and, and how we can talk to our kids about having authentic pride and, and turning that question inward on how does that achievement look to you on the inside? Like, are you proud of your work? So how does that lend a hand to this dialogue? Right. So I we've I was researching an article for the Wall Street Journal a few years ago about authentic pride, like you're talking about this healthy pride and hubristic pride, which is the pride we take in our shiny outcomes um, and that they're very much dependent on other people's feedback. But our authentic pride is knowing that if we put the work in, the result will be the result. But we have done the work. We have done the best we could possibly do. and. Um, so I've asked my son, I mean, when he was in middle school, I used to say to him, you know, he would be very frustrated writing a paper and I would say, just do your best. And he said, mom, I'm in fifth grade. I don't know what my best is. Mm -hmm. And so we started using the metric of, are you proud of your work? Are you proud of the time you put in? Are mm -hmm. you proud of your output? And if not, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. What can I do to sit with you and help you so that you feel proud of your work? Um, and so that's our new barometer is pride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it certainly does change, change how we talk about things and allows for self-assessment instead of looking at how others are, must be assessing me. So give us your top tip. What would you want people to come away with after reading your book or listening to this podcast about achievement culture, about helping our kids to deal with the toxicity and putting away that feeling of never being enough. So I have so many ideas that come to mind, but maybe the, the one that sticks out the furthest is, you know, as parents, we are told that our ultimate job is to raise independent children who will go out there one day and be self-sufficient. And that is an important goal of parenting. But what I have found in my research among the healthy achievers is that there's actually a more profound goal, and that is to give them a mindset and skill set of interdependence. That means being relied on and relying on other people in healthy ways, because the, the kids who were able to bounce back the fastest from setbacks were children who had this deep sense of worth, that they were worthy of reaching out for help. They were worthy of being helped. And they were also worthy of being a sense of support for somebody else. So I, what I would love to do is, you know, get in parents' minds and I, I unpack it in the book, but what does interdependence mean? Um, how can you model it in your own life? You know, I've taken to modeling it with my own children. When I rely on other people, how any success I've ever had in my career is absolutely dependent on the people around them. My editors, my friends who introduced me to people, the encouragement I got, even when I first started, you know, my journalism career, just having that encouragement, um, that is healthy interdependence. And so the mantra that I would love people to keep in mind, and I, it goes to this interdependence and it's actually something Ned Hallowell writes about in his book, the childhood roots of adult happiness, and that's to never worry alone. And I think if we keep that in our heads as adults and we, we use that as the mantra for our children, no matter what, never worry alone. 
kids will get through the hardest of times. Mm. I love that. And I do, I do remember seeing that in the book and circling it and underlining it. In fact, was thinking about it last night uh, because I was worried and I did jot off a a text message to somebody about it. So I really appreciate that whole idea of interdependence. To me, it spoke to what we started with was this idea of connection. And when we feel connected to others and they feel connected to us, we're not worried alone. And we we recognize people's contributions uh, and our own contributions, that whole I feel idea of feeling like we matter and they matter and that connection matters. So I appreciate what you're saying. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book and the work you're doing? Oh, thank you so much. So you can head over to my website, jenniferbwallace.com. Um, and you can, you know, if you pre-order the book, you will get lots of goodies. I don't know when this will be airing. Um, but also if you want to get, after you read the book and you, you get the tools and you get the mindset and you hear the stories, head over to the matteringmovement.com, which is a nonprofit that I have co-founded, um, with a few colleagues where we are helping parents and schools and communities have the tools to roll out mattering in an even deeper way. Mm, That sounds great. For those of you who are running around in cars driving, don't worry, I got you. In the show notes, all of these links will be there. We'll make sure where they are there for you. And please don't forget to go to backtoschool.howtotalktokids.com to grab your tickets to the virtual event on September 7th at 8 p.m. I am so excited to see you there. It's going to be awesome. And Jennifer Wallace, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed talking to you and enjoyed reading your book, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Dr. Robin. You too. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. You can come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. We can chat about it at twitter.com. I'm still there. Dr. Robin, I'm on Instagram on Dr. Robin Silverman. TikTok, threads, we're all there. And I'm going to be going back and forth with Jennifer Wallace all week talking about this great book and our podcast. And you can tune into that. I'll be creating memes of all the great things that Jennifer said so that you can share them with your friends. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about Jennifer Wallace and her book and our podcast. The more you rate those five stars, the more other people hear about the podcast and these incredible guests. And don't we want them to know about these incredible guests? So let's get those reviews out there. I really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please go to drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. And of course, a reminder that you can pre-order my book, How to Talk to Kids About Anything. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the day when you fall short, you've got this. You're here, you're getting the information you need. Now, perhaps you heard something today and you said, oh boy, I have played right into this achievement culture. What have I done? Do not worry. There is always tomorrow, okay? Parenting typically provides you with the ultimate do-over. So if you have done something, if you have said something, if you didn't say something, if you wish you said something, you can start now, you can start today, you can start next week. There's always 
another option to try again. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.